Welcome to Middle East PolicyCast, episode 66 for December 27, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Since 2016, statements from Riyadh have suggested that Saudi Arabia might be on the verge of reorienting its decades-long promotion of Salafism around the world. In a new institute study, Arab politics scholar Dr. Sarah Foyer investigated Saudi reform efforts and their potentially profound global ripple effects. She also offers policy advice for how Washington can help promote Saudi reform efforts. The Saudi regime, such as it is today, has itself outlined a reform uh, program. It has stated itself that it wants to do uh, X, Y, Z. So we ought to take it at its word and use that as, as an entry point to try and engage with the Saudis and to, to continue to nudge them in the right direction. We'll hear more from Sarah, including the origins of Saudi religious export and the personalities behind the current reform program, after this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. I'm speaking today with Dr. Sarah Foyer, an associate fellow at the Washington Institute's Geduld Program on Arab Politics and author of the new study, Course Correction, The Muslim World League, Saudi Arabia's Export of Islam, and Opportunities for Washington. Sarah, welcome to Middle East PolicyCast. Thanks for having me. So the the thrust of your new study deals with Saudi Arabia's export of Islam and support for global Islamic uh, organizations, charities, and, and what have you. Many Americans see Saudi Arabia as a global exporter of religious extremism and the ideologies behind jihadism and terrorism. What is the real scope of Saudi promotion of or support for Islamic institutions and ideologies around the world? So already by the early 2000s, uh, the scale of the Saudis' support for Islamic institutions, things like mosques, um, community centers, uh, schools for Muslim children around the world, was estimated by some U.S. intelligence officials to have reached around 90 billion. I mean, there are a lot of figures thrown out. Um, in my own research, I found that by 2015, Saudi Arabia was reportedly spending around $4 billion annually on funding for things like Islamic seminaries, schools, and mosques around the world. Um, and, you know, that support has always been coupled with the Saudi leadership's a unique status as the self-proclaimed custodian of Islam's two uh, holy sites in Mecca and uh, and Medina, so it it has rendered the the Saudi enterprise uh, unique, I think, among its competitors, both for the sheer scale of it and also because of the the um, the sort of religious uh, identity and uh, legitimacy of the regime uh, in Saudi Arabia. And, and in terms of the identity of the regime, um, the, the Saudi monarchy calls itself the protector of the, uh, the Islamic heartland, essentially. The, That's right. The, uh, and, 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 and so this global promotion of its brand of Islam is a part of that self-identity and, and, and claim to legitimacy? That's right. So since really the early 1960s, um, exporting 
what has been a, a, an ultra-conservative variant of Islam, what, what scholars usually refer to as Saudi Salafism. Um, its detractors usually call it Wahhabism after Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. This was the 18th century theologian who had formed an alliance with the Al Saud dynasty um, as the latter was looking to kind of build its political hegemony uh, across the Arabian Peninsula. So that uh, the export of that ultra-conservative um, Islam has really been a central foreign policy of the kingdom um, since at least the 1960s. And it was a policy that was essentially designed to counteract competing most often secular nationalist ideologies in the region. So think of Gamal Abdel Nasser's uh, Arab uh, socialism, pan-Arabism. Um, and the idea was to bolster the Saudi government's legitimacy, both in the region and at home, uh, and to extend the kingdom's global influence. One uh, ethnographer and historian of Saudi Arabia has argued that until around 1979, which is a date that most of our listeners will uh, will know of, um, the Saudi leadership was pursuing two strategies uh, uh, of self-legitimization, what we might call. One that was aimed at its domestic audience, um, and that was really actually built around claims to be a modernizing force. Um, building the economy, and, and another targeting more the, the international uh, stage. Uh, and there, Riyadh found it advantageous to construct a legitimacy on religious grounds, once again touting the kingdom's role as a defender of Islam um, and later as the custodian, custodian of Islam's two holiest sites. Um, after the Iranian Revolution in 1979, we actually saw a, a shift in also its, the, 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 the ways in which the Saudi regime was constructing its domestic legitimacy and religion became much more important uh, at home as well. I'd like to put a pin briefly, 1979, um, in, in addition to the Islamic revolution in Iran, which uh, was essentially an, an earthquake, not just in, in Shia Islam, but in global Islamic movements, there was also the Grand Mosque seizure in Saudi Arabia itself a major threat, or, or it was seen as in any way, as, as a major threat to the legitimacy and stability of the Saudi state itself. That's right. And I think for, for the Saudi regime, uh, this is really a kind of watershed moment, um, in no small part because the, the, the leaders of that um, operation, of the, of the attack, um, had been trained in Saudi universities. Um, and so this was seen as a kind of example of a, a Saudi uh, attempt to build its own religious legitimacy coming around uh, to perhaps uh, bite it. And, um, and the rest is history, as they say. And so if, if from the Saudi point of view, the, the support for and promotion of Islam and Islamic institutions uh, around the world. It's, it's an expression of domestic uh, political legitimacy, but also part of overall Saudi diplomatic and strategic aims. In recent years, we've seen at least a rhetorical shift with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, often called MBS, announcing wide-ranging reforms, economic, uh, political, as well as religious, in 2016 and 2017. So um, he first announced uh, restraining the domestic religious police and later uh, turned toward a more moderate form of Islam as what the Saudi outreach efforts are going to promote. Have, have we seen any real changes, though, as a result of these uh, verbal commitments to reform? 
Yeah, so I think in in some ways we have. I mean, it's a mixed picture, but um, in the religious realm anyway, you noted uh, correctly that there is this uh, new law. I mean, the, the MBS and, and really, I, I mean, technically the king, um, uh, they really have clipped the wings of the of the so-called religious police. This is a, a, a body that is known as the Commission for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice. Um, and for decades, that this was a body that had been tasked with enforcing public adherence to very strict interpretations of religious law. You don't really see them policing the streets in the same way anymore um, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the king also abolished parts of the longstanding male guardianship system. Um, and earlier this year, he granted women the right to drive. All of these moves have been seen uh, as an attempt to push back against some of the more conservative uh, interpretations of the faith that, that really have been state-sanctioned um, for decades. Just in the last week or so, we saw the state lift uh, restriction on gender mixing uh, in restaurants. Now, I, I say it's mixed because at the same time, uh, we've seen that, for example, some of the women activists who advocated for these reforms have been arrested and reportedly tortured. Um, notwithstanding uh, unprecedented public discussions about the role of Islam in the Saudi public sphere, more tangible and I think longer lasting changes in the form and tenor of Islam itself throughout the kingdom. For example, what we might see in reformed uh, school textbooks, um, that has remained uh, elusive. And so it's uh, a kind of uh, one step forward and then everybody sort of waits to see, you know, how, really how deep these reforms will go. Um, and so far, I would say it's, it's a mixed picture. And, and to the extent that there have been uh, meaningful changes, how much of that is dependent on the person of MBS as crown prince? Uh, you know, if if the if the leadership situation changed tomorrow, would the reforms to date be durable, or would we see a, we'd be likely to see a, a snapback to pre twenty sixteen? It's a really good question. I'm not sure that <laughs> I'm not sure that. Um, it's possible to answer entirely. I think that MBS has indicated, um, through his personal statements anyway, and I think more generally through his effort to consolidate authority and to consolidate um, power, um, that uh, he's driving a lot of this. Um, but I do think that he has some allies in this, and, and one mm -hmm. such ally is is the 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 new head of the the Muslim World League, which um, which I know we'll be speaking about in a moment. This is this was of course the 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 organization, one of the key organizations responsible for um, the the export of Saudi Islam. But but even at home, um, Mohammed Al Isa, the head of the Muslim World League, has for example been appointed to the Council of Senior Scholars. This is the leading the 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 the, the leading. Um, really body of religious scholars within Saudi Arabia. And so you've seen an effort to bring in relatively progressive-minded uh, religious scholars. And in that way, I think MBS and others are trying to make some of these reforms um, potentially uh, deeper and longer lasting. But it's anybody's guess what would happen uh, the day after uh, an event such as the one you described. Turning to the Muslim World League then, uh, which was a major focus of your recent study, what is the MWL and what role does it play in Saudi religious export and, and global support? 
Right. So the League came out of a, a meeting uh, that took place in 1962. Um, it was a meeting of roughly 22 religious scholars who gathered in Mecca at the invitation of Faisal, who was at the time crown prince. Um, he was the son of the late King Abdulaziz al-Saud, uh, the founder of the modern kingdom. And this group of scholars who met in Mecca issued a communique after their meeting uh, adjourned, um, indicating that the attendees had discussed a wide range of topics, among which was the creation of a Muslim World League to encourage da'wah, that is to say, inviting people to join the faith, um, also to defend Islam and Muslim communities against uh, threats, and to generally advocate on their behalf. And the League in, in the ensuing decades really became uh, a, a principal vehicle of Saudi uh, religious export. It, it was not the only one. There are, there are other institutions that have comprised this, what we might think of as a, an ecosystem of Saudi uh, religious export. For example, the Islamic University in Medina has played a very important role um, bringing in students from all over the world to come and study in Saudi Arabia and then sending them back home to their uh, to their home countries. Uh, the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, of course, has played a, a crucial role in uh, disseminating some of the literature that organizations such as the League then uh, took on and um, and distributed in uh, in their uh, in, in communities really around the world. But any any real sustained discussion of Saudi religious export, it would be difficult to have uh, that discussion without reference to the to the Muslim World League. With with a birthday in uh, the early '60s, it, it 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 reminds me of a number of uh, transnational movements that were were gaining steam and being formed at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you had a, a great deal of ecumenical movements uh, within and between Christian denominations right. around the world. You had uh, uh, in a, a, a new. Uh, uh, birth of, of kind of international uh, socialist movements. You had right. uh, transnational um, anti-colonial movements in large parts of the world, including the Arab world in right. Africa and elsewhere. Most of those, uh, most of the institutions, though, born then um, either don't exist or are not particularly relevant today. So uh, why why is the Muslim World League still around, and and how did it manage to uh, you know retain salience? either internationally or for the Saudi government? So I think part of the answer to that has to do with the structure uh, of the League and, and, and just on a kind of practical level, how the League worked, how it was organized. So the League has always had a headquarters in Mecca. It has an additional office in Riyadh, and, and, and it has functioned through branches located in a, approximately 120 countries around the world. Those branches have taken on several different forms. You have what they call external offices, which are MWL administrative offices that are really intended to serve as the main link between the, the, the main secretariat back in Mecca and Muslims in a given country. And you also had what they called external centers. Um, and these were mosques, Islamic cultural centers, schools that were receiving direct assistance from the League, and in some cases displaying the League's logo on, on their mastheads. Um, so I think part of the uh, part of the secret to the league's success and its survival all of these years had to do with its approach to uh, dealing with local Muslim communities. Um, in many cases, for example, um, as organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood became uh, more prominent, um, the league would often team up with 
um, with individuals who were active in uh, the Brotherhood and who were already on the ground. And as long as the goals essentially overlapped, the League didn't have to expend so many uh, resources in order to recruit individuals who could then um, fulfill a variety of functions that the League uh, was happy to see uh, was happy to see fulfilled. So I think part of the question has to do with with the structures of the League. The other thing I would say is that you know Saudi Arabia, because again going back to something that we mentioned earlier, because of the special status of the, the, the Saudi regime as uh, just the sort of geographic uh, reality of um, overseeing uh, the, the two holy sites, I think that there's always been a, uh, a receptivity to a, a certain degree of Saudi uh, influence and, um, and support um, because that, that influence always came with a kind of built-in um, special status given that you know, given given the status of Mecca and and Medina, and and just on a granular level, um, for an ordinary Muslim in, say, Malaysia or Michigan or or London, uh, how will they see the, the the work of the Muslim World League in their daily lives, in 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 their mosque or in in their schools? Is it something they'll even notice and be aware of? So it really depends. Um, in let's take the case of Brussels, which was one that I sort of zoomed in on in in the study as a as a kind of case study. Brussels Brussels was really the first place in Europe that the League established a presence, and it became a kind of European headquarters for the League. So there, um, there was uh, something called the Centre Islamique et Culturel uh, de Belgique, the CICB, the, the Islamic Cultural Center of Belgium. And it was attached to the Grand Mosque of Brussels. And if you go there today, to this very day, you will see on the, uh, as you enter the mosque, the, uh, the, you will look up and you will see that the Muslim World League is written there in large letters as uh, essentially um, sponsoring this uh, this mosque and cultural center. So anybody who attended the mosque would have regularly noticed uh, that the Saudis were in some way um, uh, supporting that that institution. But the level of visibility of the League, I think, has varied um, has varied through, uh, around the world depending on the league's relationship to the the recipient um, institution. In some places, it was much more prominent. In other places, it was less prominent. In areas where the league has done a lot of humanitarian work, uh, in places uh, such as Sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, you'll often see the league's name on uh, the various. Uh, goods and and services that are being offered to communities in need. So the league, I think, often found a way to um, make its its presence known. At the same time, I think there are um, certainly within the Arab Muslim world. I don't think the league really had much visibility, in part because it didn't it didn't expend as many resources in in, in that part of the world. Uh, and 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 under the current uh, head of the Muslim World League, uh, Muhammad Al Issa, uh, we've seen notable rhetorical changes, at least That's uh, right. condemnation yeah, condemnations of the Holocaust, um, interfaith outreach to Christians and to Jews. Has this change in rhetoric been accompanied by practical changes in the League's activities? Yeah, so it's a great question. And this was something that I tried to dig into um, in the study, because 
there is no question that um, at, at the policy level, that is to say at the level of, uh, of, of the discourse and the rhetoric of the organization, um, we have seen significant shifts. Uh, you mentioned uh, one example, uh, this expansion in the interfaith engagement. This has included things like uh, sponsoring and, and thereby, you know, sanctioning Christian worship uh, in the kingdom. This is something that, you know, ha- had not happened before. Um, outreach to Jewish communities, which has included, um, you know, very vocal condemnations of the Holocaust. Um Mohammed Al Isa will be the highest-ranking Muslim leader uh, to attend the uh, 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz uh, next month. So th- there, there is some remarkable um, shift happening in the interfaith realm, but also also elsewhere. Um, I mean, we've seen, for example, that Al Isa and the League have really been stressing uh, the prioritization of. Muslims' national identities uh, over whatever fealty they may have to religious law, religious customs. Um, mm. There is a deeply kind of nationalist uh, strain in the the rhetoric and the message that Al Isa is going around trying to convey to Muslim communities. So when he goes to a community in France uh, and he meets with young Muslim French citizens who may be dismayed or frustrated that they're not able to wear the veil uh, in in public settings, he has told them and has gone on record multiple times as saying, you need to follow the law of of your country. You are encouraged to try and change the law democratically or by whatever means the state allows you to advocate on behalf of those changes. But you cannot, um, you cannot choose to simply not obey the law or the constitutions of your state. And so there's Mm. been this, this prioritization of national identity over, over, over even religious identity. Um, the other change that we've seen at the rhetorical level has been a much more forceful condemnation of some of the ideological arguments underpinning extremist and terrorist um, movements. We're no longer just hearing kind of rather anodyne condemnations of terrorism, but more a forceful attempt to go after some of the ideological, some of the ideas that are really underpinning um, and, and, and that for many years, um, if not were, were if not birthing terrorist organizations, cer- certainly nurturing them. Um, so you have an example, a, a recent uh, gathering that El Isa hosted in Mecca of around 1,200 imams. The, the final declaration that they came out with at the end, um, you know, said uh, some some very interesting things, such as uh, there, there, that there was no uh, there, there was no such thing as religious superiority. That is to say, no religious group can claim to be superior to others. Um, it was advocating for things like you know equal equal um, pay, equal rights for women. Um, so, so these are some areas where we've seen some real, I think, very important, um, promising, discursive um, shifts. Now, your question got to. Um, you know, how have these shifts been reflected on the ground in places where the League has been active? And here I think the picture is more mixed and perhaps less encouraging. Um, I I found that there were organizational, we might call them institutional particularities of the League. So, for example, the nature of the relationship between the League and other Saudi agencies back home who are in competition uh, with each other. Um, the ties between the headquarters of the league in Saudi Arabia and branches around the world have, have varied considerably. And in many cases, I found, such as the case in Brussels, 
you know, the league, even even where it was nominally in charge and paying the salaries of imams and, and other staff persons in these local branches, was not really paying close attention to what was happening uh, in these um, in these mosques and other and other Islamic centers. And finally, I would say the lack of theological output uh, over the years um, on, on behalf of the league. These these factors have limited the ability of some of those rhetorical shifts, which I noted earlier on the part of El Isa and the leadership of the league to really translate into tangible shifts on the ground. Um, and so I think I would say we're going in the right direction, but there is still a lot, uh, a lot of work to be done. So if, if, if there is more work to be done, and, and it sounds like this is uh, a, an effort that is directly uh, in the interests of the uh, you know, U.S. national interests in the region and, sure. and globally, what can Washington do to help Saudi Arabia implement and deepen its moderation of Islamic messaging and, and export without running afoul of our longstanding cultural and legal limits on direct government involvement in religion and theology? Right. So the first thing I would say is that um, I think that, you know, th there is understandably a lot of skepticism, um, uh, a lot of real even, I would say, hostility toward Saudi Arabia today uh, in Washington and, and perhaps more generally in the United States um, for reasons varying from, you know, um, uh, residual uh, anger at the, the, the Saudis' um, uh, alleged involvement uh, and certainly the participation of Saudi nationals in the attacks of 9-11 um, to the more recent um, events like the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. There is a lot of, uh, as I said, understandable, um, I think, skepticism about the degree to which Saudi Arabia really intends to uh, reform, um, to reform its, its practices at home. Um, what I would say to that is that I think our general approach should be to say, look, the Saudi regime, uh, such as it is today, has itself outlined a reform uh, program. It has stated itself that it wants to do uh, X, Y, Z. So we ought to take it at its word and use that as, as an entry point to try and engage with the Saudis and to, to continue to nudge them um, in the right direction. And I would say that when it comes to the matter of religious reform and certainly the matter of religious export, we might think of this proceeding on two tracks. The, the first policy track would entail a series of steps to try and actually really improve our understanding and even monitoring of Saudi religious export. And here I should say that, you know, the Saudis are not the only ones doing this. Um, there are several uh, Muslim-majority countries. Um, Egypt, through Al-Azhar, has been very active in this regard. Iran, of course, um, has has devoted a, a much, <laughs> much in the way of resources to spreading its own variant of, in that case, Shia Islam around the world and, and influence. Um, Morocco, a uh, kingdom on the western edge of the Arab world, has um, ha has developed a, a, a fairly comprehensive religious reform agenda in the last 15 years and has devoted significant resources there. So the Saudis are not alone in this, but um, we need a better understanding of 
of of of what of what is really happening in this uh, realm of religious exports. So that could happen by, for example, more systematic reporting uh, by our diplomatic offices uh, in 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 embassies abroad, um, or we might think about creating an interagency body to try and consolidate information gleaned principally from our diplomatic offices abroad on countries' proselytization efforts beyond their own um, respective borders. So one of the tracks has to do with improving our knowledge, improving our understanding um, of Saudi of Saudi religious export. And the second track would entail, I think, a more extensive engagement with Riyadh uh, and perhaps even with the League itself, uh, notwithstanding the, the, uh, the sensitivities that you cited uh, when it comes to American involvement and engagement in religious realms, both here at home for obvious reasons, but also abroad. I think that, you know, we have had examples um, in the U.S. government of offices that are actually devoted to doing just that, um, keeping in mind our own sensitivities and our legal um, limitations. But we might think about incorporating the matter of religious reform into our bilateral strategic dialogue with the Saudis. Um, we should be pursuing opportunities for more direct engagement with the League. Uh, and here, you know, reinstating uh, what had been this Office of Religion and Global Affairs at the State Department, I think that would be a good step. Uh, but there are, other, there are other offices, there are other agencies within the government currently that could take on that role. Um, we could think about the League's work both here in the United States, uh, its humanitarian work around the world. I think there are a few um, entry points where we might think about engaging with the League. And um, even as a means of trying to nudge the League in policy areas uh, where we may have real disagreements um, with them. And finally, uh, I would say it's going to be in our interest to try and get the White House and Congress on the same page regarding the bilateral relationship more generally. I mean, th this will only bolster um, our leverage when it comes to approaching mm -hmm. Riyadh and trying to get them to um, to really take significant steps in their own reform agenda. And and is is this the, the direct engagement with the league? Is that something that that could maybe also happen at uh, essentially consular level through the State Department? Uh, you know, we, we do a ton of cultural outreach uh, programming and, and whatnot at embassies and consuls around the world. Is, is, is that a place where outreach to the local uh, MWL offices could take place? I think that is definitely one possibility. Um, we could approach it as, uh, as, as part of a, a public diplomacy uh, effort. Uh, you know, for example, if the League is engaging in humanitarian work, as, as, it, as we know it is, in Muslim communities around the world, Perhaps working with them um, could also offer uh, an opportunity for the United States to build better ties with some of these Muslim communities. Um, and, and we we have a clear interest in, in wanting to do that. Um, so I think there are there are there are several avenues that, that we could pursue this. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I, as uh, again, as I said, that the basic kind of orientation here ought to be um we we welcome your uh, your reform uh, agenda. We welcome your statements um, indicating what direction you plan to head in. We want to go there with you, and we want to make sure that uh, you are going to be able to align your uh, policies with the preferences and the and the um, and the goals that you yourself have have 
have outlined because it's in all of our collective interest to, to get to that um, destination. We, we share this interest in getting there. Well, we've been speaking today with Dr. Sarah Foyer, an associate fellow at the Washington Institute's Gedulde program on Arab politics. She's author of the new study, Course Correction, the Muslim World League, Saudi Arabia's Export of Islam and Opportunities for Washington. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has been Middle East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast. Cast.